There's nothing new about tension between New England's fishermen and the scientists and regulators who oversee their industry. But the situation has reached fever pitch in the past two years, in large part due to a federally mandated deadline to end overfishing and the introduction of a new management scheme known as catch shares. John Bullard stepped into the middle of this charge situation when he took over as Northeast Regional Administrator of NOAA's Fisheries Service in August of this year. It's the latest step in a career largely dedicated to ocean science. He was mayor of New Bedford from 1986 until 1992. He then went to Washington to lead NOAA's first Office of Sustainable Development under President Bill Clinton. He was a member of the Massachusetts Ocean Advisory Panel that created Massachusetts' first-of-its-kind ocean plan, and he led the Sea Education Association until he took up his new post this past summer. John, thanks for taking the time to be here. Heather, it's nice to be back in Woods Hole. Bill Carp is also no stranger to New England's fishing woes. He's the director of NOAA's Northeast Fisheries Science Center here in Woods Hole. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Heather. And we invite you to join our conversation. You can give us a call at 866-999-4626 or send us an email at livinglabradio at wgbh.org. We're also on Twitter at livinglabradio. Now, John, I want to start with you. Can you clarify a little bit of just what the role of a regional administrator is? Uh, well, my job is to work uh, uh, with the uh, good people up in Gloucester at the regional office, and uh, we're the regulatory arm of NOAA Fisheries. We work with the uh, regional fishery management councils to manage uh, both uh, northeast fisheries and mid-Atlantic fisheries. The New England Fishery Management Council manages uh, f- fisheries in federal waters uh, for New England, the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council in Mid-Atlantic. So the territory goes from Cape Hatteras to the main ca- uh, Canadian bo- border. We do the regulatory aspect. Uh, there's also an enforcement aspect of uh, uh, fishery management that does not come under uh, my purview. And there's also a science aspect on which all fishery management is based that comes under Dr. Bill Carp. So are you the one with the final say then on in terms of the, the regulations that affect New England fishermen? Um, well, the councils develop plans and they, uh, they submit them uh, to uh, uh, National Marine Fishery Service and we make sure they're consistent with the Magnuson Act. Why did you want this job? This is not going to be an easy job. Don't ask me that question because I've asked myself that question an awful lot. It's it's not an easy one. The serious answer to that is I come from New Bedford. It's a fishing port. Um, I, I place a tremendous value on working waterfronts. And, uh, and there are a lot of healthy fisheries uh, for which we're very grateful, but there are some that are in, in tremendous decline. And uh, in New England... New England is defined in large part in people's minds, uh, not just economically, but the character of New England by the seaports, and and they're in trouble. And I thought, um, having retired from SEA here in Woods Hole, that if I had something to offer in trying to preserve uh, working waterfronts and fishing and the balance between healthy fish stocks, uh, imperiled as as they are in the case of uh, New England groundfish, um, and uh, and the working waterfronts. If I could do something uh, to bring them both back to health, I wanted to try. It's not easy, uh, but uh, I wanted to see if I could I could be helpful in that regard. Now, one of the very first things that you did as administrator once you took this job was to kick off a, a listening tour where you right. went all around New England and, and held these kind of town hall or community meetings. Is that a, a typical thing that, that 
incoming administrators do, or is this something that you just really felt you needed to do, and why? No, I, I don't think it's typical, and I did it outside of New England, too. I mean, down to Virginia, all, all, all uh, the whole uh, territory. I haven't gotten down to North Carolina yet, and I don't think it's typical because at one of the meetings I know in Chatham, I think it was, after listening to fishermen uh, express their fears and hopes, a uh, fisherman came up to me and said, you're a real person. And I thought, my goodness, what a low bar uh, <laughs> that someone would think that a government person would be a real person. And he was surprised at that. And I thought I was discouraged that, that the bar was set so low that I would surprise him by actually being a real person. Uh, and and so uh, I, I thought it was very important to go out and meet people on the, on where they lived, where they worked, and listen to them and understand what they were worried about and, and what they hoped to get uh, from government. And I don't know, we had several dozen sessions. And, um, and I learned an awful lot. Uh, and uh, among them that, uh, again, while there are a number of very healthy fisheries, uh, people have worked hard to, to create those, manage those. Groundfish uh, in the Northeast is, is in very serious decline. Uh, Commerce Secretary Blank has since uh, recognized that with a formal declaration of disaster. Uh, people are worried in that fishery about consolidation of the fleet, uh, that it's moving towards uh, being owned in large part by a very few number of people. Uh, that's something that needs to be addressed, that there's a lack of shared vision about what that industry ought to look like, issues like big boats versus small boats, inshore versus offshore. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of work about creating a shared vision of what it ought to look like, uh, that there are environmental factors that fishermen see, temperature changes and other things like that, that are at play, uh, and that, that many of those environmental factors, whether you want to call it uh, climate change or others, are accelerating, and that is uh, something fishermen are aware of, although the implications of those environmental factors are not fully understood, something I know you're going to uh, take a look at, and that's uh, that's terrific. Uh, and that there's widespread mistrust of government, uh, government uh, enforcement efforts, government science, government regulation, any form that government takes, any role that government takes, widespread mistrust of that. Uh, and so these messages came up everywhere we went. And um, and so that, again, was a very important reason that I went out face-to-face -face, uh, and would listen to people and hear what they had to say uh, in person. Now, as you mentioned, you are a native of New Bedford. You were mayor of New Bedford. But you've also uh, spent a lot of time, you helped get SMAS started, uh, you've led mm -hmm. SEA, and you have actually worked in the government. So you've kind of been involved with academic science, with the government, with some of these entities that are not so trusted within the fishing community. And yet when you took over the job, the reaction pretty much across the board um, from both environmental groups, from from other regulatory entities, and from the fishermen was, was very positive. Do you think that comes from being a New Bedford native? Does that buy you some, mm. some trust and some political capital? Yeah. After I, uh, I was mayor and after I, I got thrown out of City Hall for building a sewer plant, I worked for the New Bedford Seafood Co-op, so I'd work for fishermen, too. Um, and so I think I'd built up over my career some trust by fishermen. 
and I think that has helped. Uh, no doubt, before I'm done, uh, if I do my job correctly, everyone will hate me. Uh, but right now, there's there's trust, and uh, and that's been helpful. And um, and I think listening, people know I'm sincere. They know I want to help. There's no question. There's very difficult decisions in front of us, and we'll make them because uh, we've got to rebuild these stocks. What I've said to people is, I'm not sure what the official uh, job is, but the way I see it, uh, at, at the National Marine Fisheries Service, NOAA Fisheries, my definition of fisheries is fish and fishermen. Very simple, fish and fishermen. If I wake up one morning and we don't have both fish and fishermen, it's time to go home. And uh, in the ground fish fleet, uh, there's 400 fishing boats, 400 fishing boats fish who catch most of the ground fish, 400 fishing boats. There's 400 right whales. That's why we are so concerned with right whales, because if you lose one, there's 399. Well, there's only 400 ground fish boats. You could put the whole New England ground fish fleet in New Bedford, and you'd have room for another 100 boats. So... We're on a razor's edge here. We have to protect both fish and fishermen. If you lose the fish fishing industry, the ground fishing industry, you, you lose the processing plants, the ice houses, the boat yards, they become condos. We don't need more condos. You know, you don't need more of that. They, they never turn back into fish processing plants. Once they go to condos, they don't turn back. So we have to protect them both, fish and fishermen. And and they're both at such low levels now that uh, they're vulnerable to other changes, whether they're other predators like dogfish or whether they're climatic changes, water temperature changes, you know, pH level changes. They're in a very vulnerable state. And we've got, as I said, difficult decisions in front that aren't going to make people happy when we make those decisions. Now, we have uh, a caller on the phone, Attorney John Whiteside from uh, the New Bedford Sustainable uh, Fisheries. Is Speaking of dogfish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good morning, John. How are you? I'm doing well, John. I was listening in, as I do often, and I just wanted to make a call and echo that uh, from as a general counsel to the Sustainable Fisheries Association and the American Scallop Association, we uh, see a dramatic change with uh, with your tenure and the openness and uh, and the willingness to, to engage in, in dialogue in conversations and that's something that needs to keep going forward as I've said in the past to you and, and at public meetings and to constantly stress that the need absolute vital need from industry and fishermen uh, for timely accurate data uh, and that that is really the key. And my last point, I just want to follow up on something that you said that is a real key, is that we need to keep critical, there is a, a critical mass for infrastructure, whether it's all of the ancillary businesses that people don't typically associate with fishing, that if fishing effort drops below a certain point, it can't sustain that. And it is such a, an important economic engine in all of southern New England that uh, it's something that we need to keep our eye on. So keep keep up the good work, John. John, thank you so much for your call this morning. Now, 
John Bullard, you have said you were quoted when you took office as saying that science is the foundation of everything. And the Magnuson-Stevens Act mandates that regulations be be based on, quote, best science. And I wonder if I could get both you and Bill to weigh in on what is your definition of best science, because that's a phrase that's not really defined anywhere, and it can mean a lot of different things. It could mean, you know, as as John Whiteside said, timely, accurate data. Um, It could have to do with who does the science. It could could be defined a whole lot of different ways. Yeah, uh, well, science, counting fish is, is not easy because, you know, you can't see them, and they keep moving around. I'm not a scientist. And so uh, I look to the not just to the science center, but uh, to, to anyone who has uh, something to offer in terms of what I call the elusive truth. It is very elusive. And uh, so I turn to, to my colleague, Bill Karp, who I got to know when I was still at SEA down here. It's a tough job. Bill and his team at the Science Center, um, you know, have this incredibly tough task. And it's it's not just tough in terms of counting fish. It's tough because everyone is looking over your shoulder. And frequently you're the bearer of bad news. And, and people are, you know, you stick your head out of and people are taking swings at you. So it's not easy. But... Uh, I turned to Bill to answer that question. So, yeah, so Bill Karp, how would you define best science? What what are the, the, the marks against which you would measure the science to see whether it's the best science? It's a very good question, and I think it really has to do with striving for excellence in science, doing the best that we can to understand what it is that's going on out there, what the condition of the fish stocks are, what the environmental drivers are, what the interactions are between the fisheries and the stocks themselves. And as John said, it's not just a government uh, role. We have uh, responsibilities under the Act, but as a single institution, as diverse as we are, we are unable to to meet those needs without partnerships. And so it's about our science and our scientists. It's about partnerships with academic institutions. It's about partnerships with the fishing industry because fishermen – our scientists as well, they observe what's going on out there. They make decisions every day based on their understanding of the, of the ecosystem. And it's, a, it's about humility. It's about realizing that there are no right answers to any of these questions, that the more we focus, the more we work together, the more we understand, and the better the advice we can give. Now, there's been a lot of controversy in just the, the past year, the past several months, about the most recent assessment of the cod stock, and it got a lot of... Uh, fishing advocates and also a lot of Massachusetts politicians really pushing for quicker assessments, that they want possibly annual assessments of the stocks as opposed to every three years or every five years. And I spoke with some scientists from the Northeast Fishery Science Center uh, several months ago, and they said, you know, there's there's a real tension here between trying to create more science and faster science and to trying to create the best science. It's kind of like being on a treadmill, and if you keep speeding up the treadmill, then there's no time to stop and reflect on what you're doing and actually improve what you're doing. You just have to keep running faster. Do you see that that tension? Is that, that something that you're uh, currently wrestling with, trying to figure out how to both meet this demand for more and faster assessments and still make them as accurate as possible? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm also new to the region. I started uh, as acting uh, director of the of the center at the beginning of last year, but but didn't uh, take my seat officially until September. But 
The the challenge, of course, is to be responsive to the, the need to provide advice for management while uh, being innovative and um, building on the science that we have. We do annual assessments for many stocks, but there's a there's different degrees of complexity with which we approach assessments, and, and we can't do full, complete um, uh, what we call benchmark assessments annually because we simply don't have, have the resources. But more importantly, we are very concerned about how the ecosystem is changing, whether it's climate-driven, whatever it is. There are things going on in the ecosystem that are affecting the abundance of fish stocks, the availability of fish to the fleets. And if we don't do the science and work with our partners to better understand the whole ecosystem, we can't improve our assessments. So that, that really is the tension. We can do more analytical work. We can bring more data in. We can update the assessments, which we do. But if we don't provide, uh, if we don't focus enough of our time and don't work effectively with our partners to understand the ecosystem and fisheries in the context of the ecosystem, then we won't be able to move forward. Now, there we had this whole change in management scheme about two years ago in 2010, the introduction of catch shares, which essentially just means that there's a hard limit on how much of a certain fish species can be caught, and each fisherman or each fishing boat can get a portion of that, gets a portion of that. There's really been a ramp up in the tensions and a lot more talk about <clears throat> the quality of the science and whether the assessments are right in this past two years. And I'm wondering if there is something inherently more... Uh, demanding of science in the catch shares management system than there was in previous systems. Is is this is catch shares uh, more demanding of accurate science than other management schemes were? Before I came here, I worked in Alaska for the fisheries service more than 25 years. And in Alaska, there are many um, longstanding catch, catch share programs. And so I've worked um, in, in that arena um, and, and actually dealt with these, with these kinds of challenges. And they all have to do with, with the need for data. Uh, and the timeliness of data and the importance of data for management uh, increases greatly in a catch-share situation. And the importance of that data to the fleet itself changes as well. Um, so the, our challenge collectively in, uh, in collecting fishery data and in using it for science and management really is to be able to address short-term needs for managing quotas within a catch-share program and the, and the data quality requirements for stock assessment. And that's a transition, and it's a transition, frankly, that we're struggling with because the, the new catch-share program in this region and increased demands for data to support uh, science and management uh, are really, um, really resource-hungry. Um, and we are working very hard to rebuild our information system so that we can support both of those needs. Joel is giving us a call from Brewster. What's on your mind, Joel? Hi. This show has to be an hour long. <clears throat> it's, uh, I wish it could be, yes. <laughs> it's a crime for me to barge in here uh, because you obviously have way more questions than you're going to use up anyhow. But I got just two points. Uh, uh, up until 1952, Power boats were outlawed in Bristol Bay, Alaska, and the gill netting salmon fishery there. After that, they allowed power boats in there. I have not kept up with the state of the fishery or the fish stocks, but I did become aware of World War III when every power boat owner, realizing that winches and power blocks would do all the heavy lifting, 
the fight for licenses and permits and things like that uh, was horrendous. Uh, I don't know whether that ruined the fishery or helped it. My other point is, is that it seems to me nature uh, works just the opposite way that we do. They want the big, mature fish uh, to survive. That's why they're big and mature and and can fight and swim and what have you. Whereas most of the young fry were meant to be killed and eaten by something. That even includes every land land species, including us. But Joel, our techniques work just the other way around. Joel had a point there about the, the big fish and, and kind of competition between uh, essentially what the fish population itself needs, um, the big fish to, to reproduce, and the fact that we want to eat those big fish. And so it's not just managing the number of fish, right? We actually have to, to get into managing um, what sizes of fish are caught and, and really getting into the, the population level. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's a very complex challenge. And I think the, what, what it's all about is that fishing affects the, the population and the structure of the population, size and age. And we want to sustain the fisheries for human use. We don't want to sustain them in, the, in their um, unfished form because then we wouldn't be feeding people. And one of the consequences of harvesting is that the big fish tend to disappear. Those are the ones that are caught first. We tend to um, uh, harvest at a, at a size and age that's below the maximum size. And one of, the, one of the elements of the science really is to understand that dynamic so that we can provide advice which allows, allows the fishery to proceed and which maintains an optimal size and age structure to maintain the reproductive potential of the stock and the size of the population. John, we're sitting here talking. You just took office in August. Bill, you're also fairly new to the region. And then last week, we got the news that Dr. Jane Lubchenco, the administrator of, of all of NOAA at the, at the federal level, um, is going to be retiring in February. Dr. Lubchenco, while very respected in academic circles, has been a bit of a lightning rod within New England's fishing community. She's drawn a lot of fire um, for her support of catch shares and for some of her background in academic science and, and environmental science. Do you see this change in the guard, I guess, at, at some of these higher levels as an opportunity to mend some fences and and turn a page in terms of the relationship between fishermen and regulators? Well, I, I think that uh, I think it's an opportunity. Uh, there have been a, a bunch of changes, right? Bill and I are two of the changes, uh, both brought in by Dr. Lubchenco. Uh, in recognition that it's been very contentious and and this historical fight that's been going on for decades between fishermen and government doesn't get us very, very far because people get so used to fighting, they don't listen to each other. And we've spent some time just now talking about how there's so much to learn from one another. As Bill has said time and time again, fishermen are, are marine biologists. Otherwise, they wouldn't be any good at catching fish. And so if we are willing to learn from one another, if we put down our swords for a while and listen to each other, we're going to have better science. We're going to make better decisions. But we have to put down our swords and stop fighting long enough to listen to one another. We'll 
will write better laws. That was the intention of the Magnuson Act when Warren Magnuson created the act, was involve fishermen and government together in doing the science and writing the laws. You'll get better enforcement, you get better science, and you get better laws. Well, there have been a lot, not not just Dr. Lubchenco, there have been a lot who've just seemed to focus on let's just battle. And so we ought to take every opportunity to um, put down the swords, listen to one another, and see if there's a better way to do it. And so if her departure is an excuse to, okay, if the release of the Smartwood report on enforcement is another excuse to say, let's turn the page, let's look forward and see if there's a better way of doing business that involves cooperation instead of contention, then let's use whatever excuse we can to turn the page and focus on cooperation instead of contention. We've got just a couple minutes, but I want to ask you going forward, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, regulations can dramatically change the shape of the industry. It's changed the size and the composition of the fleet already. Um, But there's also a lot of really interesting stuff going on, kind of grassroots. Fishermen are changing the way that fish is distributed with community-supported fisheries. They're looking for new markets for their fish. They're they're trying out new economic models. Going forward, what do you see as as the balance? How much of shaping the vision and and the form of the fishery is going to come from regulations and top-down, and how much is going to have to come from that grassroots from the fishermen up? I I think the catch shares are very promising. The days at sea was going nowhere. Having people fish for 18 days a year was ridiculous. I mean, I'm so glad that's over with. The catch shares and the and the uh, sector managers are actually, I look at it as a kind of glue for the industry. And, and they're very innovative, and they're struggling with how do we hold uh, hold the industry together. This was my job when I left City Hall was trying to organize fishermen. It's a tough task. So I think this is actually uh, very promising in in how to do this. You had uh, John Whiteside on earlier. He's trying to figure out how do I develop markets for dogfish? You know, there's a lot of dogfish. We're increasing the quotas every year, but if you're going to increase the quotas, you got to get people to to eat dogfish and, and sell it. And so it, it's innovation. We need innovation. We need marketing for underutilized species like that. And and so the sectors are are applying a lot of brain power we need uh, scientists working on gear modifications. How can we catch uh, species like that and and uh, and avoid bycatch like yellowtail flounder? So you need a lot of partnerships working on bycatch reduction, on marketing species like uh, dogfish. So um, I, I think all of that comes from people working together, um, and I, I think we're moving in the right direction in that way. Sounds like exciting times to come. John Bullard is Northeast Regional Administrator for NOAA's National Marine Fisheries Service. Bill Karp is the Director of NOAA's Northeast Fisheries Science Center. Thanks to both of you for being here. And thank you for listening. This is Living Lab on the Point. I'm Heather Goldstone. Living Lab on the Point is produced by Heather Goldstone. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. Living Lab on the Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, a service of WGBH.